as mentioned earlier, what a blessing it is to be able to come together with the freedom that we enjoy this first Sunday in the month of July this year. And as we gather today, our heartfelt desire to describe and to honor the God of heaven. You may notice on the wall behind me, the title of the lesson this morning is, in, in essence, a part two from the lesson we began last Lord's Day morning. This opening slide will be a development of that point. And as it does that, I would just like to mention perhaps a few statistics. We understand how easily practical the whole subject of attendance is as it relates to the services of the church. In many congregations, there are those who perhaps will attend at the worship hour on Sunday morning, but then they are not likely, in many cases, to attend at the Bible study hour on Sunday or at the Sunday evening service, or at a Wednesday evening service. That kind of consideration, in fact, plagues many congregations in which there is a great distinction between importance as some attach it to the various assemblies. Last Sunday morning, we looked at a sermon in which we looked at the positive emphasis for attendance. Why should a Christian desire to be present at every service of the church? We looked at five reasons. Number one was the fact that it's commanded. Number two, the understanding that goes with the fact it's good. Number three, the appreciation that it is what is involved in being true to Jesus. Number four, the understanding that went with the fact that it is what's involved in not only the duty to oneself, but also the duty to others. And lastly, the issue connected to spiritual growth. Those are why we should want to be present at every service. But as I mentioned then, the Word of God has so much to say about this that I chose to develop this lesson, but quite frankly, it is more of a negative emphasis. What will happen if I don't? What will happen if I choose not to be present at the services when in fact I could be? This opening slide will be one that develops it by first casting a spotlight on what we mean by the entirety of this subject. I would suggest that we all appreciate the practical issue that comes with what's on this slide before us. We noted last Sunday, and we'll not revisit all of it again, but the Word of God sets before us the fact that God commands His children, Christians such as you and I, to be present to the assemblies. There's no argument about that. But the top of that slide points out the following. The verse that you and I just had read in our hearing, Brother Wayne read verse 25 of Hebrews chapter 10. Would you revisit one of the words that appears there? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Isn't it a bit interesting that the verb that appears there is assembling, the assembling of ourselves. It doesn't say assembly. It is at any occasion when the brethren assemble. that have to just be the Sunday morning worship. It's any of those particular services is under the consideration and under the character of what's being presented in a passage such as this one. But because of that, note the following. As the other passages in the New Testament describe the occasions of this assembling, the first Corinthian letter points us to this appreciation. Paul wrote to that church and said, When ye come together, 
not if you come together, or not perhaps the circumstances of your coming together. He said, when, realizing the fact that it was presumed that they were going to be coming together by the description of that book, and doing so at those times, some of which were involving their worship. I pointed out chapter 11, verse 20, and chapter 14, verses 23 and 26, all using that language. Isn't it interesting that with that language put in place, now we can ask the following. In the reality of life, is it the case that there may well be occasions when you or I cannot come to one of those assemblies? It might be health reasons. It might be emergencies in one form or another. It could be other circumstances that preclude our attendance. Now the fact is, God doesn't demand that which is impossible. And therefore, in light of that, just as has been the case in the other features of the development of the Word of God, our God doesn't expect of us what we cannot do. I've listed several examples. Think about Noah. Every one of us would agree that the responsibility given to Noah was a great one. Build an ark. He didn't have modern electrical power tools. He didn't have the earth-moving equipment that one might suppose that would have made that job quite a bit easier. It mattered not. God gave him a task, expected him to complete it, and he did. Genesis 6, verse 22. Think about Moses. Here was a man at the tender age of 80, given the charge to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, take them to the land of Canaan. It was going to take him 40 years nearly to do it. And he was age 80. Did God demand the impossible? Of course not. Moses was equipped with the skills and the capacity to do this, and he effectively led the people through those very interesting years of wilderness wandering. But it was possible. What about Nehemiah? The city of Jerusalem, in terms of its walls, was absolutely in ruins. And here was one man who, by the appreciation and the urgency of the moment, decided to undertake the task of leading the people to the rebuilding of those walls. You would think that would be a gigantic task. Again, no earth-moving equipment except the hands that they each one had and various tools like some kind of shovels and other things such as that. And yet in 52 days... They completed the wall. Isn't that amazing? What may at first have seemed almost impossible, God knew it was possible. Let's quickly close that by noting this. Let's apply that principle to the assemblies. If you and I cannot attend due to, again, something that's beyond our immediate control, God doesn't then hold that against us as something that, in fact, we would face at judgment because we were unable to keep that particular statement of commandment. In essence, our absence is excused in such instances as that. But with that in mind, let's close that slide like this. We aren't talking about those circumstances in light of our sermon this morning. We're discussing that situation when a person makes a willful and deliberate choice not to come when the person could come. 
they choose to do something else. Or perhaps the pertinence or the importance or perhaps the circumstances related to the urgency are simply not recognized and not understood. We're talking about that case. And with that in mind, now we're going to look in some more detail to that weighty passage. I use that adjective weighty because it seems to bear so heavily, not only on the case before us, but on the consequences of it. Would you revisit with me Hebrews chapter 10, and let's put verse 25 in its larger context. That is to say, apart from the other matters in the book, what specifically is the Hebrew writer discussing as he mentions the matter of attendance? Let's begin in verse number 22. Hebrews 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord." And again, the Lord shall judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's reading from verse 22 to verse number 31. In that, might I ask that we begin like this. That chapter, as well as chapters previous, have put in place a marvelous array of blessings that you and I as Christians enjoy. Among them is sanctification, forgiveness. And as you can well tell, you and I are enjoying the completeness of the gospel effort because you'll notice in verses 17 to 20, our sins are forgiven and we have the blessing of entrance into the most holy place. In the Old Testament, entrance into the most holy place was reserved for only a very few, in fact, only the high priest. And yet today, you and I, as Christians, are blessed with the opportunity and, yea, the marvelous reality of entering the most holy place. It is in that very consideration then that verse 22 begins by saying, Let us, if you'd like to notice it, three times in this set of verses, there is an admonishment. Verse number 22 begins, Let us. Verse 23 begins, Let us you'll notice this phrase, let us, is then an encouragement, an admonition, if you will, that we as Christians are expected to do something. Let's start it like this. Verse 22, 
let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. May I ask, who are we drawing near to? The phrase draw near immediately suggests that there is in fact a closing of a gap, a coming together, a drawing near. As you can see on the slide, there are several things about this that are asserted. One by one, let's highlight them. Might we begin like this? As we draw near, obviously we are drawing near to the very one whose power and force is mentioned in verse 21. Note the last word, please, in verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. When we come together in the assembling of the saints, we are enjoying a time of drawing near to the very presence of what God would have us appreciate. There are some who at this point will be quick to interject, Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That has nothing to do with the case of an assembly. That verse is often misused. It has to do with judgment. It has to do with a verdict of discipline upon those who are wayward in their service to God. This verse, I would suggest is perhaps the first one to which you and I can turn that highlights when you and I are coming together in the assembly, we're drawing near to God. We appreciate the nature of... It's His will that we be here, but His will, His kingdom, His desire, the nature of what He would have us to know is what is set forth. But notice what else it says with a true heart. It's not our desire to come together without genuine character. We don't want to come together just because somebody asserts we need to. We should want to, like we learned last Sunday. We should appreciate in these times a richness that is then described like this, in full assurance. Do you know you're headed to heaven? According to the New Testament, we all can know 1 John 5, 13. And if we aren't, it isn't God's fault. And it isn't the fault of the Lord either. It's the fact we haven't taken the diligence to apply to ourselves and our heart that which the New Testament teaches. And where else do we find that teaching than in the assembly where the faithful Word of God is highlighted in song, it's highlighted in preaching, it's highlighted in the various aspects of being encouraged by those who are striving to walk faithfully. It's a lovely system the God of heaven has put in place. Notice what else that verse says. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. That describes all of us as Christians, or at least it should. In our obedience to the gospel and in our faithful living for the Lord, our hearts sprinkled. The imagery takes us to the Old Testament. Do you remember that the priesthood, namely Aaron and his sons, they would sprinkle around the altar the blood of the animals that was being sacrificed. And it was a part of the cleansing of not only the effects being described, but that idea is used here. Our hearts have been sprinkled. We've done a lot better, you see, than just sprinkling some blood or water because our blood's tainted with sin. But our hearts have been sprinkled. And you'll notice it says, from an evil conscience. If you'd like to hold your finger here, look back to Hebrews 9 and see another way that this idea is presented. 
Verse 14 of Hebrews 9 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Notice, it is the blood of Christ. And here you notice that that blood is something that has sprinkled our hearts from an evil conscience. The last thing mentioned in the verse is this. Our bodies washed with pure water. As you can see on the slide, a reference to baptism. When you and I, when an individual responds to the gospel and is baptized for the remission of sins, notice how it's described, washed with pure water. Notice that we're admonished then to draw near with a true heart. After you and I are baptized, it is not that that's the end of our obedience. That's only the beginning point in many ways. From that point forward, we are admonished to live faithfully. And that will include the regular and frequent attendance at the assemblies of the church. You'll notice that because we're baptized, we should desire then to meet at those cases. Let's close that slide and go to the next one. We have the second admonition, verse number 23. Not only are we to draw near, but it goes on to say, let us hold fast. Isn't the imagery very moving? If you hold on something, to, if you hold to something tightly, if you cling to something very forcefully, we each understand that you are being said to hold fast to that entity to hold fast to that object. In this case, what are we holding? It says, let us hold fast the profession. So we aren't holding to a post or a tree or a piece of wood. We're holding the profession of our faith. Other translations read that word confession. We're clinging tightly to the confession that we made. I've asked you to notice on this slide that, of course, there is a great confession that is commanded in the New Testament. Do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? That confession each of us make. And may I say that as a profession for life, it is absolutely the top. It is the pinnacle. Didn't Jesus say, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? And when He said that in Matthew 16, 18, it was prefaced by this, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. What is the rock to which the Lord referred? The confession Peter had just made, which was, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you see that very kind of confession is what was prerequisite to our baptism. We made the verbal profession that Jesus is the Christ, Master and Lord, and that we will always follow Him, no matter what. But He commands that we assemble. And so as we hold fast that profession, notice what else it says. And I've tried to emphasize it on that slide. It says, "...without wavering." the meaning of which is evident. To be without wavering, as you can see, is to bend to neither side. 
the walk with the Lord is a very difficult walk in many ways because the world makes it that way. Temptations and difficulties from the devil will seek to move us aside to the left or the right. But yet the Lord says that that pathway to heaven is in my footsteps. And as we serve Him, we're often going to be challenged. The difficulties can many times be many. The world will make its decisions and quite often will impress those upon the church, shall we follow or shall we not? Unless we're grounded in the things of truth without wavering, we might make the wrong decision. We might go off on a tangent which is not the thing pleasing to God. The text says, without wavering. Doesn't that remind you of Joshua? Who, it says, went neither to the right nor to the left. Joshua 1 verse 9. That should characterize your faith and mine. Let's end that verse this way. For He is faithful that promised. Not wavering is thus linked to and likened unto faithfulness. How faithful are we? May I say that one of the tests by which we can at least gain some knowledge of this will have to do with the next verse. Because there you'll notice it like this. There are some who make a habit of not being very faithful in their attendance. They're there sometimes, but you can't count on them to be there for all of the assembling of the saints. They may willfully choose on many occasions not to be there. They may choose on fewer occasions not to be there. But at the very least, it seems to be a characteristic of their, quote, faithfulness that that does not include attendance at all the services. I wonder what the Bible says. Does the Bible connect faithful attendance at the assembling of the saints to faithfulness to God? If the Bible makes that connection, then you and I are not at liberty to sever it. It must be perceived as that way. And so verse number 24 begins like this, "...let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works." There was the third of our let us. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider. Are we doing the best job of considering here? The text says, let us consider one another to love and to good works. Might I invite each of us then to consider this. That word consider, I believe it's one slide backward from that. There at the bottom, to consider means to observe, to take note, with observation, to draw conclusion based on the facts under consideration. Consider one another. So notice, we aren't considering some inanimate matter. We're considering fellow Christians here. And in, in so doing, it should be our desire to provoke them to love and good works. To provoke means to stir up. It means to motivate. May I ask, if I'm not here, how am I motivating fellow Christians to good works? If they're here and I'm not, how am I provoking them, as this verse says, to love and good works? After all, the love to God should be paramount. 
Mark 12, verse 30. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And if that is the paramount matter, and God's people are meeting and I'm choosing not to be there, then is my love for God that which is evident? The question answers itself, doesn't it? You might furthermore note this, love and good works. The Christian is commanded to do good works, aren't we? Titus 2.14, Titus 3.14, both highlight the beauty and the requirement of, on the Lord's part for us regarding good works. Is it a good work for the people of God to come together in assembly? Surely no one could say that it isn't. For we admonor, we honor God by that which we do, we encourage one another, we in fact motivate toward the beautiful home in heaven. How is that bad? And yet, as we consider one another to love and good works, what's the very next element? The very next matter, verse 25. There you'll see at the bottom. It has to do with a choice that some have made. May I read it again with an emphasis on one section of the verse? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Attendance, you see, isn't just a modern-day problem. It was a problem in the day of the Hebrew writer. He said there are some who are making it a habit. There are some who are making it a routine, making it a frequent choice as the manner of some is to forsake the assemblies. You see, it isn't just a modern-day issue, is it? The church has always, no doubt, had the appreciation of some who don't think the assemblies are that important, or at least not all of them. What does the text say? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Do you note the contrast? Those that were forsaking the assembly were not exhorting the others. Isn't that what we just noted in verse 24? May you and I never lose sight of how special, how sweet, and how valuable the assembling of the saints is. I know that in recent weeks, with the choice and the edict of some congregations to where people are trying to meet at home and having live streaming services, that is not a New Testament assembling of the saints. It doesn't meet the definition set forth in both 1 Corinthians and in the text before us. But you'll notice the implication that can come from it. We all know that we can easily become creatures of routine. You miss several weeks in a row and it becomes pretty easy. I think I like this. It becomes pretty easy to find supposed justification for not going the next time. That kind of consideration points us back here in the first century. There were those choosing not to assemble. As that verse develops the additional thought, it says, And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Many questions, I suppose, could be asked, what day is he talking about as you see the day approaching? 
I know what there are some who say is that means Sundays. I don't think so. I don't believe that's a particular reference to what you and I would call the first day of the week. And the reasons for that are many. But could I at least ask you to note this, so much the more as you see the day approaching. Remember, we've already learned it doesn't say assembly, it says assembling. It doesn't have to only be the times they came together on the first day of the week. But when it says the day, it seems to be a reference to watchfulness and motivation. We don't know when the Lord's coming back. We also don't know when we're going to die. The important point is always to be ready and vigilant and watchful. I would say that perhaps the strongest argument can be made for that reference to the day as the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, the Hebrew letter was written to these individuals who were of strong Hebrew background. And as they tried to cling tenaciously to the Hebrew system, that whole city and the temple were soon to be destroyed completely. And they needed an anchor for their faith, which was not Judaism. You can't give up Jesus and cling to this, for it's about to be gone anyway. That day, it would seem to me, refers specifically to that and admonishes them, look, you can't forsake the assembling because you need to be strong in the faith. With that in mind, let's close that slide. Moving to the next one and look at the next verse. That vigilance and that watchfulness motivates us to see what's next. Did you note verse 26? For if we sin willfully, if we sin willfully. He had just talked about forsaking the assembling and now says, if we sin willfully, may we ask, is the willful forsaking of the assembly a sin? Of course it is. And this verse teaches that it is. After just mentioning not forsaking the assembling, he now says, if we sin willfully, that means with deliberation, with willful choice, I choose not to be here, I have committed a sin. Let's develop it on this slide. I've tried to point out just a brief listing of many of the things which are a part of our assembling. May I say that if I choose then, or if a person chooses not to be present, that person is guilty of all of these things. You're guilty among other things of failing to love God, failing to love the Lord. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so, His commandments is to come. So if I choose not to come, I must not love Him as much as I might have said that I did. Not only that, I have failed to love the brethren. Because the text has told me I must consider them to provoke them to love and good works. What else do we do? I've set a bad example. There may be a weak brother or a weak sister. There may be someone else struggling with some particular matter in life, and our presence might have been a critical moment to encourage them to hang on and to be strong. And by me not being there, I have at least contributed to the doubts that might arise in their heart and the other features that seek to weaken their faith. In addition to that, 
I have denied the confession I made prior to baptism. I professed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, and with all of my heart that I would keep His commandments. And I've just gone right back on what I said. Finally, you might notice in that list, I have willfully chosen not to be very watchful. I've chosen not to be very vigilant. I've chosen not to be very alert. And not only that, I have willfully chosen to not put the kingdom first. I've done all of that and so many other things. And certainly, is to willfully not be present a sin? Of course it is. Let's read the verse again. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now please note, it doesn't say you can't be forgiven from that sin. But what it says, there is no other means of the obtaining of that forgiveness other than to go through the channel of the blood of Christ, which is availed the very place you've chosen not to be. There remains no more sacrifice for sins. There is no other plan of salvation than the one that's been given. As you and I close that slide, that would clearly mean repentance would have to be in order. So that person who chooses to willfully be absent of the assemblies, you have to repent, just like you do from any other sin. And that means a change of mind that will produce a change in attitude. You can't keep missing the assemblies. Your faithful attendance is required by not only observation from the membership, but the God of heaven Himself. Notice that with that repentance comes the next matter of verse 27. So we've already learned it's a sin to willfully be absent. But verse 27 describes, "...but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation." Question... I know that there are some who look upon various heinous sins. Murder, kidnapping, fornication. We all are understanding of that. In the day of judgment, you will have to give an answer for those things if you're guilty of them. And some might think, come on, the missing of a service? That's not a big deal. What verse 27 say? But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. Does God consider it serious to be willfully absent from the services? He says here, it'll be the subject of judgment. You'll have to give an answer for it. And if the answer isn't good, there will be fiery indignation. Doesn't it sound serious? Doesn't it sound as if the attendance at the services, faithful attendance, is a serious issue? Jump to verse 31 for just a moment. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is with that observation made. We are just attempting to use the Hebrew writer's own words to motivate and lead us. Now the bottom of that slide takes us to verse 28. He that despised Moses' law, so he's going to draw a comparison to the old law of Moses, when a person under the law of Moses despised that law, the person died on the word of two or three witnesses. So notice he's talking about a verdict of judgment. Under that Old Testament law, when you violated that law, 
at the mouth of two or three witnesses, capital punishment was enforced for those punishments that were in that category. But now it comes to verse number 29. If that was true of the old law of Moses, what about the law of Christ? Wouldn't we all agree the law of Christ is a better law? It's a greater law. It's a more superior law. And so verse 29 says, Of how much sorer punishment. Suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. That person who willfully chooses to be absent is running roughshod over Jesus Himself, trotting underfoot the very Son of God, the one who died on the cross. You're walking right all over Him as if what He did, as if what He stands for, as if who He is, is rather trivially unimportant. Not only that, and hath counted the blood of the covenant that very New Testament gospel, the one that cleansed you and saved you. Verse 29, when you're willfully absent, among other things, you're counting the blood of the covenant a rather unworthy thing. I think we've been given a renewed appreciation to what the assemblies at least indicate. They speak to so much more than just me sitting in a pew. They speak, you see, to my connection to God, my connection to the brethren, and the understanding of judgment that will come when I look upon that inappropriately and insufficiently. As you and I close that slide, verse number 30 now puts it like this. For we know him that hath said. So notice we know something. We know that God has said this, Vengeance belongeth to me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. God's going to take vengeance. And we know He's going to take vengeance upon those who sin. That's easy enough to say, but could I ask it this way? Will He take vengeance on those who willfully choose not to be present at the assemblies? That's what the text says. Among the other sins described, he takes such serious regard to this one that is included in this description. I hope then that each of us are able to appreciate a point of conclusion. And then the lesson is yours. We've looked at the positive emphasis for attendance and today cast a spotlight on the negative emphasis for it. The fact that if I'm not here and I choose to be in that condition, it is a willful sin on my part. A deliberate, willful choice of sin. And we know that no sin is going to enter heaven. And therefore, I'm going to forfeit my place in that lofty, eternal, heavenly kingdom if I willfully choose to be absent. May that motivation prompt all of us to think with seriousness, with urgency, and yet with love as it relates to those assemblies. On that slide, we've looked at this negative emphasis today. And as we each analyze ourselves and examine ourselves, whether we're in the faith, it leads us to ask, is my view of the assemblies what's consistent with the Word of God? Do I look upon them as the prized treasure that the Bible describes them as? If not, I, I need to make some changes. I need to change my perspective on those assemblies. 
we here at the Peeping Congregation, under the leadership of our, of our elders, strive all of our assembly periods to be encouraging and motivational, to be that which will help keep us faithful toward the fullnesses of all of what life brings. May we all strive to avail ourselves of a blessing of those assemblies every time that we possibly can. If today there might be someone in this assembly whose attitude toward those assemblies has been faulty, has not been as it ought to be, you need to make some changes. And the Lord would urge you in that regard. If we could help you today by praying on your behalf to God, as a wayward child of God, we'd be delighted to do that. If you, however, would wish to become a Christian today so that you can devote yourself forward and faithfully to the nature of those assemblies, believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And if we could be of assistance, please let us do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.